0: Proverbs 16, verse 26, says, A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. You think about what that means. It means that uh, a worker has needs, he's hungry, his belly is, is empty. And his hunger is what stirs him on, what motivates him then to work hard, to earn his wage so he can purchase his food, so he can satisfy his, his longings for food. It's a verse in the Bible that speaks about motivation. We all need motivation. Parents, perhaps you look at your kids, perhaps you can understand that they need motivation. Businesses understand they need motivation. God understands that we need motivation. As I deal with my children, I find a big difference in their willingness to work if they have a little bit of motivation, and that motivation can be positive or it can be negative. If punishment is on the horizon, it is amazing how eager our kids are to work, and if a little reward, a little dollar or two is on the horizon, it's amazing how much harder they work as well. Businesses understand the, the need for motivation. Maybe you've seen those those posters. I think they're called successories. Have you seen those? They picture an earth spinning right, from outer space. It says, service. Treat every customer as if your world revolves around them. It does. Or success, right? A picture of a canoe ready to launch onto a lake. It says this: success is a journey. And not a destination. Or a picture of a soaring eagle, and says, "Dare to soar." Your attitude almost always determines your altitude in life. Those posters are merely to help people in the workplace to have a, a different perspective, to have a, a different motivation, have a different desire to carry on, to pursue things, to serve their customers, to seek for success, to to soar with a proper attitude. Well, God understands motivation as well. In our text this morning, in First Peter chapter one, verses 17 through 19, we're going to see two motivations that Peter gives us to live a holy life. We saw one motivation last week, chapter one, verse 16: "You shall be holy, for I am holy." And we'll see two more this week. Let me read our text: First Peter chapter one, verses 17 to 19. If you address this Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. These words encouraging us on and motivating us on to holiness come within a context. Peter, in his whole book, is talking about sufferings and trials that come upon our lives. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 6. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And what Peter says is he says he wants to focus your attention not on the trial itself, but focus beyond the trial Focused is something better. In fact, the first 12 verses of this epistle are focused upon uh, the great salvation that awaits us in heaven. Peter describes of how the prophets of old desired to, to see this salvation and to see it all accomplished. We see in verse 9 that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And our salvation is incredible. It's an eternal, perfect, never diminishing in any way guaranteed inheritance that we have. And Peter says, in light of that inheritance and in light of your trials, verse 13 is really the hinge that turns many things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have these trials that you're dealing with today, fix your hope in another place. Fix your hope on your ultimate salvation. Fix your hope beyond your trials because that's what's going to help you through them. And then, as a result of that, and then becoming in verses 14 through 16, which we've seen the last couple weeks, Peter says, "...with this hope, live a holy life." This hope you have should, live to, should lead to holiness. We saw a quote a couple of weeks ago in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 and 14. Peter says, "According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him spotless and blameless." See, the, the anticipation of this future hope of, of salvation and inheritance in heaven leads us to a righteousness today. It leads us to holy living. We saw that the negative in verse 14. As obedient children, don't be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But rather, the positive, verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Well, that's where Peter's heading, Verse 16, 17, 18, 19, all the way through verse 21, and even, even beyond that, is to know that if you have this hope, it has a purifying effect upon your life. And I think the reason why Peter puts this exhortation here to holiness is because trials in our life have a way to squeeze us and lead us into sin easily. Right? When the pressure's on. We're often enticed to sin in greater ways when there is than when there is no pressure. And Peter says, May it never be. In the midst of your trials, live a holy life. And as we see here, three motivations. First one was in verse 16. We saw it last week. First motivation, the holiness that Peter gives is the holiness of God. The holiness and purity and awesomeness of God ought to lead us to live a holy life. And you see that there in verse 16. You should be holy for I am holy. Our holiness is because He is holy. The holiness of God is a motivation for us to live holy today. Now, we spent a whole message last week on that. I'm not going to comment anymore on that. Just merely to say that's my point one. Kind of because it carries through. Here's my point two. The justice of God. That's our second motivation to holiness. It comes here in verse 17. Where Peter writes this. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, in this verse, Peter addresses God in two roles. Can you see them there? What are the roles? There are two of them. What does he address them as? A little audience participation here. What does he address them as? Why? A father and then as a, as a judge. A father and a judge. God is the father of those who believe. We've seen this even in chapter 1, verse 14, that it's obedient children, right? To be a child, you need a father. In this case, God is our Father. And as such, we are to address Him as Father, is what verse 17 says. Literally, that means to call upon Him, to call upon God as our Father. Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Paul talked about the intimacy that we have with God, even calling Him our Abba, Father. We call God our Daddy. Such relationship we have with Him through Christ. But Peter also tells us that God is a judge as well. That is, He's the one who's constantly evaluating our lives, bringing discipline when appropriate. He's constantly judging our life even now. Hebrews 12 speaks about how even His disciplining hand will come upon us. But also, at the end of time, we'll give an account for our lives. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So each of us are going to stand individually before God as our judge. In fact, you can even see the, the individuality of our judgment as it says here in verse 17. He's going to judge to each one's work. According to each one's work. That means according to... Andy's work, and according to Reuben's work, and according to Doug's work, and according to Betty's work, and according to Darcy's work, and according to Phil's work, and Hannah's work. Everyone's going to stand before God. He's going to be our judge. That high court is convened someday. The judge is based upon things we did and didn't do. That's what it means that He is judged. The fact that He impartially Judges means that we're not going to get out of that. But, but here in verse 17, Peter tells us that God is both our Father and our Judge at the same time. That God is our Father is no reason to dismiss God as being Judge. And that God is our Judge is no reason to dismiss God as being our Father. God is both these things at the same time. In fact, maybe you remember the, the lyrics we sang. You're my friend and you are my brother, even though you are a king. A friend and brother of God as we are, because he's our father, and though he's a king, he's going to judge. And these two things are held simultaneously together. We ought not be surprised that that's the case. We know of examples of this. Like I think even in our church body, Phil Gusky's an example of this. He's a financial advisor and his son works for him. And so as his son is with him, Phil is the boss, and he is the dad. And at times I know there's, it's kind of difficult weighing that line, isn't it? And, and you all, all of you fathers, know the difficulty of weighing that line when you need to discipline your children because you want to be a loving father, and yet you also need to be the judge to correct them, to get them on the right path when they're going astray. That's the case with God. He is both our Father and our Judge. He's both at the same time. And we ought not to take one extreme or the other. And there are some, I think, that take extremes. Some people take God as the the righteous Judge and then filter everything that they know and think about God and the fact that he's, He's a Judge. He's constantly looking over us. Always watchfully inspecting our work, waiting to pounce upon anything that we have done wrong. And if this is the case, if this is your view of God, you're just going to walk on eggshells your whole life, just kind of cowering in fear of Him. You know, I think this is a a tendency in the Muslim religion towards this direction. Uh, An omnipotent God who's sovereign over all things with very little relationship. But you can swing to the other side as well and say that God is our, our Father and totally miss the fact that He is our judge. You can filter everything through the, the love of God. And, and in that case, people who do that would view God more as uh, the chief motive that operates in Him is kindness. He's just going to be kind and He's just going to be careful. He's not going to bring anything hard. He does nothing but good for us. When we go astray, it doesn't really matter because God is just going to bring us in with His love. And I think some of Christianity has a tendency towards this direction that would so focus on the love of God that it would would come to an extreme and miss the judgment of God. And in the worst case scenario, those are people who would turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, which is what Jude warned of in Jude chapter 4. In fact, even Peter warns of that in chapter 2 verse 16. Act as freedom, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use as bond slaves of God. Yes, you have a freedom and a love there, but don't use it to, uh, to suppress the fact that God is our judge. And in fact, that's the error that Peter is seeking to address here. Those who would swing too far to the fatherly side and say, oh, he's just love. I don't need to worry about his judgment. And Peter says, oh, no, you had better worry about the judgment. You rightly address Him as Father, but don't forget that He's also judge. Well, there's one command here in verse 17. It's this. Conduct yourselves in fear. Because your heavenly Father is also your heavenly judge, realize that the fact that He is your Father doesn't negate the fact that He is a judge. In fact, he says it here, he will impartially judge. In other words, God judges people impartially. He doesn't look at the color of your skin to determine how it is you'll act. He doesn't look at your financial status to determine how he, he will act. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female in God's judging work. God judges without partiality. And so Peter's saying, don't slack in your obedience to him simply thinking that you have a trump card back on the station. My mind as I thought about this to illustrate this was Dan Scott. Many of you know Dan Scott. He uh, used to be in our body but moved to Indiana. And his father is the sheriff of DeKalb County. He's been the father there, he's been the sheriff there for years. I don't know, how long? 15, 20 years? 10 years? I don't know. He's been a long time down there. And it would be a foolish thing for Dan to think that once he gets into DeKalb County that he can... Do anything he wants. He can disobey the traffic laws because his father is sheriff in town. Now, wouldn't that be foolish for him to go 90 and a 30 and have the policeman stop him by and say, hey, but my dad's the sheriff. It's not going to work, is it? It's going to work when he's in jail and he says, I'm dad, I was driving a little too fast. Can you come? And you know what? Dad is going to come as a loving father, but he's already come first as the judge, as he is the sheriff. And Peter simply says this, don't presume upon God's fatherly love. Rather, live in fear, in the fear of God during your brief stay on earth. Now, this ought not to be a paralyzing fear, as if we're incapacitated from doing anything. And some have felt that and have sought to, to reduce this fear to a, a reverence. And, and I can sympathize with that. You know, it's not that we're just trembling in and, and stage fright before God. But, but I do think that, I mean, this word means fear. It means we need to be afraid of God. The NIV, I think, does a good job in talking about here we should live in reverent fear. Right? Just in a fear of Him that is reverent and that picks him up, lifts Him up as high and exalted. Listen, a healthy fear of God will lead you to a path of obedience. And that's a motivation to godliness that Peter gives right here. I think there's wisdom. There's a reason why Solomon wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You fear the Lord, you'll live a wise and holy and pure life. You want to live a holy life? Then fear the Lord and you'll live a holy life. I mean, we all know what accountability does to us. People work harder when they know the boss is watching. And athletes run faster when they hear the coach screaming, Run! Students study harder when they know the test is coming. Accountants are more careful when they're being audited. Drivers slow down when they see the policeman with their tracking gun. So also people live better when they know that God the judge is observing. And by the way, this is why atheism... So often leads to unrighteous behavior. With no God, there's no accountability. With no accountability, there are no reason for morality. With no reason for morality, anything goes. It's interesting that in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul puts forth a compendium for the proof for the sinfulness of man. He finishes it with this quote: He says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. <laughs> so they don't fear God. They go rapidly and greatly into their sin. And John Calvin commenting on this verse said this, All wickedness flows from a disregard of God. How good is that? All wickedness flows from a disregard of God. For as the principal part of wisdom is the fear of God. When we depart from that, there remains in us nothing right or pure. In short, as the fear of God is a bridle to restrain our wickedness, so, when it is wanting, we feel at liberty to indulge in every kind of licentiousness. So, what is the fear of God? You know, I could give you lots of definitions, but here's what I want just one simple definition. I think the fear of God is living in the full reality of God, living in light of the full reality of God. That's what the fear of God is. And we go through 1 Peter, you find that this is a background to all of Peter's thoughts. You can suffer now because you know ultimately that God is there. He's going to right all wrongs. Any injustices come against you, He's going to make those right. And so you live in fear of Him and not in fear of people upon the earth. I mean, think about this. How is it that we can obey the injunction here of chapter 2, verse 13? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. How can we submit ourselves to the king and to the president? Well, because, as it says in verse 17, we're to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. See, because we fear God, He works through the king. And we know that any injustice done to us by society, God will make it right. How is it that the servant can be submissive, verse 18, to an unreasonable master? It's only because in verse 20 that as he does what's right, he finds favor with God and he knows that someday God's going to right all those wrongs. How is it that Jesus never retaliated for the evil done against him? Verse 22 and 23. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. How is it that Jesus did that? It's because he feared God. He entrusted Himself to Him who judges righteously. How is it that a wife of unbelieving, disobedient husband can continue to walk in chaste and respectful behavior? Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Well, it's because they know that such behavior, verse 4, is precious in the sight of God. That's the fear of God. Living in light of the reality of God allows you to suffer now because you know your glory is coming later. How is it that you can endure slander for your good behavior? Chapter 3, verse 16. It's because you know that those who slander you will ultimately be put to shame by God who you fear. How is it, chapter 4, verse 4, that you can endure it when others malign you for not joining in wickedness? Well, because you know the judgment's coming. Verse 5. They will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. How is it that you can suffer for being a Christian, chapter 4, verse 16, without being shamed. Because you know that ultimately God's judgment will turn upon the ungodly, verse 17. It's the message of First Peter. Listen, your life is short and realize that there's a bigger reality than just this life. And the reality is God and live in light of that and fear God. You know, our, our life is short. Several times here in First Peter, he speaks about how short it is. In chapter 1, he calls us aliens. Right? These are people who are, who are from a different place. Just come down here for a little bit. In chapter 2, verse 11, he speaks to them again as aliens and, and strangers. We're just here for a little time. This isn't our home. Our ultimate home is in heaven. And we see that here also in verse 7. Knowing during the time of your stay here on earth... Your stay here is the same word translated in chapter 2, verse 11. It's aliens. It's just a a drifting stay. We're paroikos. We're oikos. We're, We're staying, but par. We're just kind of, for a little time we're staying here on earth. And in light of that, you need to fear God because that's where you'll be for a long time. You know, it's a little bit like we're spending the night at someone's house only to return again in the morning. I want you to think about spending the night at someone's house some of you maybe that was a long time ago some of you parents some of you kids maybe it was a little bit ago but you can reflect upon staying at someone's house I know for myself I'm very careful with how I act and behave while I'm among them treat their stuff I don't go through all their closets and their drawers and rummage I'm very careful not to break anything to leave it just nice after I get done with the bathroom clean it all up nice so it looks good you know Careful to fold my towels in the back bathroom. Careful to make my bed before I leave. Take all the clutter off the floor. I'm careful to leave everything just as it was. Don't want to break everything. Why? Because I'm mindful of the owner of the house and want to behave while I'm there appropriately in light of the owner of the house, knowing someday I'm going home. I think that's what Peter's telling us to do. We need to live light in light of the owner of the house. We need to live in light of the creator of the universe. We're staying at his place for a short while. And conduct yourselves in fear during your short time of stay here on earth. Do you need a motivation to holiness? Just remember the justice of God. Do you need a motivation to holiness? Here's my third point this morning. It's actually point number two, but it's point number three. you see it there in your notes? Another motivation to holiness is the blood of Christ. And that's verses 18 and 19. And I love the fact how the Scripture always balances things you may have been thinking when I talk about the judgment of God hey how is it that we stand in Christ alone if you're talking about being judged well just let verse 17 come in its full thrust and let verse 18 and 19 come in all their glory and you balance them in your minds that's what Peter calls us to do knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It is interesting here that Peter again calls us to our salvation. But in doing so, he doesn't bring up how glorious our salvation will be. He brings up how glorious our salvation was. Peter tells us to think about the ways in which we become children of God. We've been reconciled. We have been, as he says here, redeemed. I we think of Redemption. Normally, you think, its yes, I think of, um, coupons, right? You've got a coupon that's redeemable at the store for a little bit off of your product or something for free, or you, know, you can redeem your, your can in certain states, whatever. You, you come, and that's a good way to think about redemption. Think about the marketplace where things are bought and sold, and if you've been redeemed, there's something that you're buying for. Except, here, this redemption, I'm not sure if it's every instance in Scripture, but it's most of the instances in Scripture the vast majority, that it's used in relation to purchasing people. So when you think about redemption, think about not the grocery store, think about the slave market where people are inhumanely paraded up before people to buy them. And then imagine somebody in back and saying, I will will buy that one for $10,000. And then when you get that one, that one comes and He says, you are free. I just purchased your redemption. That's the picture that you ought to have in mind. We don't have slaves in our country today, but they did back then. And it was a reality. They thought about the the redemption from slavery. That was in their mind. And and Peter says this, you were redeemed. You were brought out of slavery, just like Israel was brought out of bondage of slavery in Egypt and God redeemed them. You you were brought. Bought, You were brought out. You were freed. In fact, Jesus even said this. This was the reason why He came. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Same word, Lutra'o. As a redeeming price for many. Paul interpreted the life of Jesus the same way. He said, Christ Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's what redemption is. It's the price to free us. Christ bought us out of slavery and brought us into freedom. We were in the, the, the death grip of sin with our eyes blinded by Satan from the, the realities of the gospel of Christ. And then God came. Christ came and purchased our redemption from us. He removed the blinders from our eyes. Gave us a spiritual discernment so that we could understand the things of God. He gave us faith that we might believe and granted us our freedom. That's the glory of the work of Christ. When Christ came to earth, lived a sinless and perfect life, He gave it as the price to deliver us from our sins. Galatians 1, 3 and 4. Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from the present evil age. Now, now look carefully here in verse 18 how He describes our redemption. He describes our redemption from our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. He said, before Christ, your life was futile. It was vain, empty, useless, worthless. Oh, you know, it may have looked fun. You may have had a nice car and a nice house. You may have been invited to fancy parties. You may have had status in your company. You may have received praise from men. You may have had the financial wherewithal to take some exotic trips. But in the end, when you evaluate the life of a non-Christian, Peter says, it's futile. It's futile. It's like a night on the town with frolicking fun, which the next morning really doesn't mean very much. Oh, there may have been joy. There may have been some fun. But when you gaze upon eternity, you see what a fun-filled life really is. It's really vanity. In my office, I have this plaque which sits there. I look at it every day and it reminds me of the greatest reality in this life. Only one life will soon be passed, but only once done for Christ will last. How many of you have a, something like this in your house? Some of you do. A lot of you. It's, it's very common. And it puts to focus what is our focus here is that a life before Christ is a futile life. It's an empty life, but a life in Christ will count for eternity. And yet, sadly, there are many in this world today who are living futile lives and they don't even know it's futile. And they're living these lives because their parents lived these lives before them. And probably their parents' parents lived this life. Probably their parents' parents' parents lived this life. See, as in verse 18, it talks about this way of life was inherited from your forefathers. See, when you grow up in a home that spends each Sunday at the football stadium worshiping your favorite team, That will also become your God as you develop a similar love. When you grow up in a home where profanity flows smoothly off the lips of your father, you too will find it easy to profane the name of the Lord God. When you grow up in a home where sex and violence are set before your face each night in your home theater, you cultivate an appetite for these things. When you grow up in a home that has no regard for God, no regard for His people, no regard for His word, you'll develop similar anti-God feelings as well in your own heart. Sinful habits of parents are easily passed on to you. And Peter says that these have been inherited. It's not just money you inherit from your parents. It's not just property you inherit from your parents. You can also inherit this sin from your parents. They teach you and train you in the ways of unrighteousness. But it's interesting here. It says that Jesus redeemed us from that. The way we used to live isn't the way that we live now. God redeemed us out of this feudal life and redeemed us into what I'm calling a fulfilled life. The fulfilled life is the life that looks beyond the feudal life and looks to the future life. See, it's not the parties or the house, the vacations or the successes or the televisions, the cars, the computers or the boats or the glitz and the glamour, glamour tickets to the Super Bowl that's ultimately fulfilling. That's not. That's knowing that you have a, a hope awaiting for you in heaven. That's where your joy will come from. And that's what makes us willing to suffer now for the name of Christ because of the glory to come. Now, it's not that we lack joy in the here and now. It's simply that our, our, our joy and happiness isn't based here and now. Our joy and happiness is based in heaven where Christ is. 1 Peter 1, verse 8 Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, But believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Of all people, we ought to be the happiest people of all. Away with doom and gloom Christianity, in with happy Christianity. Because we ought to so greatly rejoice in Him that we have an inexpressible joy and full of glory. Uh, Yesterday morning, uh, we had some Jehovah Witnesses come to our door. And I was in my office working, and we got an intercom system. And my wife buzz me, says, "Steve, we see some. I, I think these are Jehovah's Witnesses out there. They're, they're, they're coming. Do you want to come in?" So I said, "Sure, I'll come in." And um, so, sure enough, they were there. And you know, over the years, I've talked to enough Jehovah's Witnesses to realize some things about them. I, I know at first. Um, is really good. Even what I would encourage you, if you get some Jehovah Witnesses, really engage them. Really learn what their theology is like, and really learn how it is. And eventually, then you might get to the point, kind of where I am. I, I see that I'll never be able to persuade them. It's a waste of my time. And uh, oftentimes, they come to the door. I just rebuke them. Well, with with these texts on my mind, I was I was really thinking about um, how the Jehovah Witnesses, when they When they look at the Bible, they look at it as an encyclopedia with verses to be able to to load in their guns as bullets to be able to just boom, boom, boom. Oh, here's the verse. Boom, there's boom. They don't just look at the Bible and love the Bible. They they don't just read through it and memorize large portions of Scripture and find it as a love letter. They don't look at the Bible that way. And so I was just, I said, you know what, in my mind, I said, I'm just going to come to these people and talk to them, and show how happy I have found Christ to be, and how precious I have found Jesus to be. Now, in engaging them in conversation, I mean, I just thought, okay, what is it I've been memorizing recently? I've been in Jude, and Jude four speaks about, how, and I don't even have the verse memorized quite yet, but it talks about our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I said, you know what? That's a verse I'm just memorizing. He said, you know what the Bible says? That Jesus is our only Master and Lord. And they went, who? No, it doesn't say that. And because that's smashing their theology because they G- believe that Jesus was the first created being so to speak of Jesus as our only Master and only Lord. Kind of nailed them a little bit. And then they, they wingled out of that like they always do everything. And then they went on to some other things. But I know that what I wanted to do to show them was that, that uh, I love the Bible and I consider the the redemption that I have in Christ as precious. And so I just tried to exude that in my face and my attitude and my joy. Because Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't they don't have joy. They don't celebrate holidays. They just try to, you know, do what they are. Just real cold religion. But we of all people, chapter one, verse eight, ought to be happy. Because our redemption is worth it. What we've redeemed from in our future glory is so much sufficient. Well, in verses 18 and 19, in talking about our salvation that was, Peter also talks about the price of our redemption. In verse 18, he gives us the and In verse 19, he gives us the positive. He often does this, right? The negative came in verse 14, the positive in verse 15. It's a a good way of teaching. Tell it what it's not supposed to be like and say what it is supposed to be like. So let's look at what our redemption wasn't like it wasn't, verse 18, we weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Now, we normally don't think of silver and gold as perishable. We think of those as the precious metals that will endure forever. Right? When the stock market's going like this, you, know, you might often see in the newspaper, buy gold! It's the only steady source, right? Well, God calls it here perishable. It's just the earth's money system. It's perishable. And when God purchased our freedom, He didn't use money. It's not because He didn't have enough money, because the earth is a Lord and all it contains. Psalm 24, verse 1. God has all the money in the world. But here's what it is. Money can purchase many things, but money can't purchase everything. In recent years, MasterCard... Has done a good job of letting us know that there are some things that money can't buy. Ten years ago, tomorrow night, October 22nd, 1997, it's the fourth game of the World Series that year on NBC. MasterCard aired its first commercial with this theme that money can't purchase any, everything. The first commercial showed a father and a son attending a baseball game together. And the lines of that 30-second commercial went like this. Two tickets, $28. Two hot dogs, popcorn, and two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, what does it say? Priceless. All together. There's some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. And for the past decade, these commercials have been all around. Um, a few years ago, Hike for Life, we had this t-shirt. Ruben, I th- did you design this t-shirt? Yeah, three cheers for Ruben. Hip,
1: hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray.
0: This was uh, for the Hike for Life that we were involved with in, uh, in Rockford. And just spoofing off the MasterCard deal. Baby crib, $139. Car seat, $79. Life. Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. If we look at our redemption here in First Peter, a MasterCard commercial right here in verse 18 might go like this A new Bible, $40. A CD of the sermon, $1. Tithe, $75. Redemption from sins, priceless. There are some things that money can't buy. And that's the message here of verse 18 and verse 19. Is that money couldn't purchase our redemption, but as verse 19 says, we were redeemed with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, we weren't redeemed with precious metals. We were redeemed with precious blood. Now this word precious speaks of its value, which far surpasses the value of silver or gold. In other words, when God saved us from our empty lives, He didn't do so with the most valuable things in the world. Rather, God paid for the price of redemption by something of greater value, something with infinite value, the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I don't think we'll ever know the full value, the blood that was shed there on Calvary for our sins. I mean, you think about compiling all the wealth of all the world, and who knows, it's untrolled as... Um, what do you say, Sr? No, you say bazillions or whatever, gajillions. We don't even know the wealth that's on the world, but all the wealth of the world was not sufficient to save a soul. That's why Jesus said, right? Be foolish if a man gained the whole world but lost his soul, because you can't have the whole world and buy your soul with it though we'll know, never know the full value of the blood that was shed for our sins, I do know that the blood of Christ will never be forgotten. It will never be forgotten. In Revelation 5, the song rises to Jesus. Now think about this. This is at least 2,000 years after His death. His resurrection. He's in heaven. In the future, in years to come. And what are the angels saying? I think it's 24 elders. And the creatures are singing this song. And they're saying, Worthy is a lamb that was slain. Worthy is the dead lamb because he lives again. Worthy is this one who poured forth his blood. Why? Because you purchased for God. There's that redemption theme coming in. With your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Thousands of years after the death of Christ they're still talking about the death of Christ because the precious blood of Jesus is so valuable. short time later, Revelation 5, verse 12. Myriads and myriads of angels say this chorus, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's amazing that they think about the slain Lamb in eternity, never forgetting the redemption of christ worshiping the slaughtered lamb so great is his redemption those holy angels who never needed the blood of christ to atone for their sins because they didn't sin so great is this slaughtered lamb that they would lift him up for everyone and give him great honor and glory because he purchased our freedom with his blood let me ask you do you cherish the blood of jesus It's precious and it's valuable. Do you cherish it? Can you sing? Let's just sing together. Oh,
1: the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white as snow. How about this one? There is a fountain filled with blood Drawn from Emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their, guilty stains. Lose all their <clears throat> guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that blood. Lose all their guilty stains. That is the precious
0: blood. All our guilty stains are gone. Silver gold could never accomplish that, but Christ did. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the precious blood of Jesus. You know, this morning we have an opportunity to remember the precious blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to have some men maybe they can come. We're, we're not going to come yet. I have some more comments, but we think about the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus was precious because of, of who God, who Jesus was, and what Jesus did. Jesus was God in the flesh. And Jesus lived a a perfect life. He was the unblemished and spotless lamb, as it says there in verse 19. In other words, he lived a a perfect life. You think about a diamond. Uh, The price of a diamond is based upon two factors. Now, I'm sure if you're into diamonds, you'd probably show where I'm wrong. But I think fundamentally two factors show how valuable a diamond is. One is the weight of the diamond. I mean, you're not going to buy a diamond that's this big for like 15 cents, right? The bigger it is, the more valuable. The heavier it is, the more valuable it is. <clears throat> and a second factor is the purity of the diamond. The purer the diamond, the more valuable it is. Lots of defects. Oh, I don't want that one. Pure, crystal clear, perfect diamond. Huh, I'll take that one. When we think about Jesus, you can see how weighty He was. Throughout the Old Testament, God established a sacrifice that would be offered for sins. Various animals were retaken. Most notably, there was a, a lamb that was the symbol of that, especially the Passover lamb. And, and God said, this is a, when you think about an animal, you think sinless, right? You think period. But there's an animal. Now, now, now think, though, about us in relation to animals. I th- we are higher than animals. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Huh. The same could be said of a lamb. Are you not worth much more than a lamb? God has created people in the image of God, not animals. As Such we're worth more than they. And now think about this. Consider the worth of Jesus compared to us. He is the one that angels worship. He's the sovereign creator of the world. As we are to the animals in worth, so Jesus is to us in worth. So now, compare Jesus to one of those Old Testament lambs that were slaughtered. Jesus is far more weighty than any lamb that was sacrificed. And Jesus also was pure in First Peter 2.22, we see that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. <laughs> what a remarkable statement. Committed no sin. Lived 33 years in His life and didn't sin once. No deceit found from His mouth. If anyone restrains His mouth, His tongue, He is a perfect man, James 3 says. And that's what Jesus was. He was a perfect man. No blemish was found in Him. And when you consider what Jesus endured, it becomes even more remarkable. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Have you a temptation coming on you today? Know that Jesus had a similar kind of temptation, and every bit as intense. And Jesus conquered that without sin. He came out on the backside, as verse 19 says, spotless and blameless. And so I ask you, what's the effect of these things? What's the effect of our redemption? Well, here's what it is. As we know these things, it motivates us to holiness. That's the context. That is the thrust of Peter. Chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. We conduct ourselves in fear upon the earth because we know how precious and valuable our redemption is. When something's precious, you handle it with care. When your three-year-old is all outside the dinner table and wants to help clear the dinner dishes, what do you do? Be very careful. Be very careful with the dishes. Don't drop them. Be careful. And you're guarding and watching that whole time because a three-year-old could easily drop them so also the precious redemption that we have in Christ is valuable and we need to value it. We need to be careful with it. We need to view it as precious. And when you view the sacrifice, the blood of Christ as precious, it will affect the way you live. You live a righteous life as Peter calls us to live. I think it's a perfect transition to the Lord's Supper and that's why I've chosen to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning because we're going to remember the sacrifice of Christ. And so the men are going to come. They're going to pass out some bread. They're going to pass out a cup as well. This is for you if you consider the the blood of Jesus to be precious. If the blood of Jesus isn't precious to you, the Bible says don't partake of uh, the supper. Let let those things pass. It's okay. Because if you eat of them in an unworthy manner in an unbelieving manner, then um, it's not good. God says you will bring judgment to yourself if you do that. So if you're not a believer in Christ, if you, don't, if you don't view the blood of Jesus as precious, don't celebrate with us. But if you believe it's precious, boy, celebrate with us, taste the bread, drink the cup, and celebrate the, the preciousness of the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray and then the men are going to come and pass out the the bread. You take it and hold it. I'll come up again. We'll eat it together. So let's pray. Lord, I have tried the best what I can to bring forth the marvels, the glories, the preciousness of Your Son. I pray as a church, oh God, that You would center our hearts and our minds always upon the blood of Christ always upon the cross of Christ, always upon His death, because it's there that we died. And it's through His resurrection that we live. And apart from His death, we would be lost in our sins. And apart from His life, we would still live dead in our vain manner of life. And so I pray, Lord, as we pass the bread, as we pass the cup, and as we take it celebrate it together, I pray You give us a taste of, of Christ. Show us again afresh of His glories. If there are those here today who don't know you, I pray today that they would repent of their sins. That they would cry out to a Savior, the only one who can save. Their good works aren't good enough to save. Their money isn't good enough to save. Their religious activities isn't good enough to save. The only thing that's good enough is the blood of Jesus. I pray they would see that, be convicted in their sins. You'd turn them and lead them to repentance. There are those among our body who are walking back the ways of the Gentiles. I pray, Lord, that You'd show them the true ways, the the righteous way, the holy way to live. I pray You'd stir them by these things, a fear of You, first of all, and second of all, a knowledge of Your redemption. They'd repent of their ways, and they'd come and celebrate the table new and afresh again today with us. And For those of us who who love You and, and seeking to serve You however we can, Lord, I pray You'd help us and bless us. Feed us this table. Nourish and strengthen our
1: souls. Pray in Christ's name.